0: OK, we're back with the show. And today we have returning is Andrew Hunt. Andrew, what would you like to dedicate this episode to?
1: Well, I'm going to dedicate this to he uh, He had his, his birthday was yesterday. So it was it's my producer, Lionel Hicks, who uh, produced the film The Infernal Machine. And so, yeah, so I think he's now legally allowed to drink. So, um, you know, happy birthday, Lionel. And I dedicate this to him. Okay, wonderful. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the St. Paul Filmcast with your host, Nick Palladichuk. Each episode, Nick interviews filmmakers and other artists from the Twin Cities area. I'm Carly Palillo, and thanks for listening. And thanks for finding us. Please give us a review, and feel free to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. And now, lights, camera, action.
0: All right, we're back on the show, and today we have our guest. He just came out with a full feature film. It's called The Infernal Machine. Uh, He's a writer and director of the movie we have today, Andrew Hunt.
1: Well, thank you for having me. Thank
0: you. And this is your returning so we have to say thank you for returning to the show.
1: Oh, absolutely. No, the first time that I came on here, this was a blast. And, you know, like I said, I love talking about movies. I love talking about the process and mm-hmm. and everything. So it's always fun to come back to familiar yeah. places to basically talk more about movies. And
0: Inferno Machine is, uh, you written and directed, um, it uh, is it's available where right now?
1: It is um, in select theaters across the country as well as on demand. So if you go onto Apple or you go into Comcast or Amazon, uh, the Infernal Machine is anywhere that you could rent it. So the select theaters and select uh, regions of the country, uh, yes, those people will be able to walk into a theater and actually see it, but if you live in, let's say, Tuscaloosa, and it's not playing in Tuscaloosa, you can always go on Apple, iTunes, or on Comcast, or Amazon and be able to watch it.
0: But I'm, I'm gonna say right now, see it in theaters. If possible, make the effort.
1: Absolutely, I mean yeah. that's the thing. When you're making a film, you want to have that cinematic experience, and and I've I've had a chance of having the film screened in front of 200 people, and to sit in the back of the theater and watch, no one's moving. You could hear a pin drop. Uh, When the credits start rolling, everyone's rushing out and as they're running by me, they're looking at me going, I have to pee. And (laughs) they're running out of the theater. That gives you this confidence that you're going, oh my God, I think I I made a good movie. I kept everyone engaged, intrigued for a little under two hours. And it's one of those things that I love going to a theater. I love seeing not just my stuff, but anybody's movie on a big screen because it's a shared experience. And so if you do have a chance to see it in a theater, um, I would absolutely 100% suggest going there yeah. rather than renting it at home.
0: I think my, uh, my friend, film critic Brian Eggert, who does for focus Reviews, he said at best, you retain it better if you go see a movie even good or bad whatever the experience you remember the experience of going to see it in the theater yeah, yeah.
1: and i think i think the big thing about it is you don't control it You know, like if you're at home watching a movie (laughs) on TV, you can pause it to go to the bathroom. You can, a phone rings, you know, it's easier to pause a movie and answer the phone or if you're on your iPad or anything like that. But when you go to a theater, the movie's demanding your attention. It's not, you know, I know all of us, if we even see a glowing screen pop up in the theater, it's almost like sacrilegious. Like, how dare you have yeah. something else interrupt this experience? So it is a different mindset. I mean, it's very much the same mindset as people going to see a play. Right. You're not going to hit pause and stand up and look at the actors and go, excuse me, can everyone stop for a second? I really got to go to the <laughs> right. bathroom. Yeah. You know. So that is the one thing. And it's a shared experience. It's like you can feel it in the audience how everyone is tapped into the screen. And, and that's the thing that is, it's really hard to... It's really hard to, to show it on a spreadsheet. It's to show it like as like you know forensic evidence, but it's something that you definitely feel when you're in that environment.
0: right, yes, I agree. Uh, the film stars a uh, guy Pierce along with uh, Jeremy Davies, yep. and Alice Eve. Uh, the story um, from what I can send is about a reclusive writer who actually somebody finds out their location. Yes, kind of a little bit of a mystery entanglement about that.
1: yeah. Uh, it's So, yeah, you, you basically hit it right on the, the nail on the head. It is a story about a reclusive writer that had written this book called The Infernal Machine 25 years ago. And when the book first came out, you know, it was kind of like one of those intellectual powerhouses, like a, a Salman Rushdie's *A Satanic Verses* yeah. or a David Foster Wallace. I was,
0: I was thinking like uh, Salinger with *Catcher in the Rye*. That, yeah. Well,
1: that is that's where that was kind of one of the, the 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 seeds of the idea of of a book that is a really heavy book. But when the book came out, it was incredibly controversial. And a 17-year-old kid reads this book and inspires him to shoot up a bunch of people at a university. And so now we cut to 25 years later, we're in the year 2004, where our author, Bruce Cogburn, has never written a second book. He's living as a recluse out in the desert and pretty much a, shutout, a shut-in you know, from the rest of the world until he starts receiving letters from this fan. that um, keeps going to his P.O. box and the fans has all these questions and wants... Bruce to be involved in the book that this fan is writing, and the fan's name is De Kent. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah it's fun. it's a fascinating thread. And yeah, I think you like um, the entanglement that this guy's not even just reclusive; he's off the grid. I mean, Absolutely, no Wi-Fi, no iPhones or whatever. Yeah, but also internally because he's stripped. It's very stripped. Exterior-wise, for this house it's very, what this necessity is. Yeah. So, uh, very interesting character, this Bruce Cogborn. I know your process of making with names. Did the name come first before you wrote it?
1: You know, I would love to take credit for that. But the initial idea, the seed of the idea actually came from a podcast. Uh, You know, um, there's a podcast that I listen to called The Truth. Not that I'm trying to push other podcasts on your podcast. No, no, we got it. We got it. Yeah. (laughs) But they... um, They're this series that do these anthology, their entire, uh, I think they've done like 100, 200 episodes, and they're this anthologies type of show. So every episode is a beginning, middle, and end. It's its own story. And there was one time I was driving up to Duluth, um, and I was listening to this one episode called The Hilly Earth Society. And the entire episode, most of their episodes, you could close your eyes and you swear that you're watching a movie because the sound design and the production value is just unreal. But this episode, The Hillier Society, was just a series of voicemails of this reclusive author named Bruce Cogburn calling this DeKent character saying, could you please stop sending me these letters? And as you're listening to each voicemail, it's like next Uh, new voicemail. The the, the author, Bruce Cogburn, is getting more aggressive. He is threatening. And then at one point he's drunk and then he's uh, apologetic and now he (laughs) wants to be friends. But you're only hearing this conversation. It's a one-sided conversation. It's just the conversations that this Bruce Cogburn is having. The whole time I'm listening to this podcast, I'm incredibly tense because it reminded me of All the President's Men. You know, a film that is so tense, but yet it doesn't. You're, you're even asking yourself, why am I so tense? Yeah, Because you feel like something bad is going to happen. Just the tonality of the entire show. Well,
0: right. Because in of the office scenes when they're not even interacting.
1: Exactly. It's, you it's, have like the typewriter. Totally. Digitized. That's it. Yeah. You know, it's just this. There's some and everything's like enhanced. And so my whole thing is my brain was on fire because. In that podcast, it never talked about what Bruce Cogburn was like outside of the voicemails. What even? What book he even wrote. There were so many questions that I had about that character and I was so fascinated by that at the end of listening to the podcast, I reached out to the producers in New York and I said, what is your guys' um, rules, regulations, and optioning podcasts for a movie? And Jonathan Mitchell, the creator of the show, wrote me back and said, "Uh, well, no, we totally are open to it. Which episode are you interested in? And my response is the Hillier Society, which again, is just a whole series of voicemails. And Jonathan's email back to me was like, how the hell would you make that into a movie? But for me, it was the perfect seed because when I think of reclusive authors, I think of J.D. Salinger. And when I thought of J.D. Salinger, I'm thinking about Catcher in the Rye. And all of a sudden, the ideas started to come in of like, how does a creator feel about a creation that they had made that goes off and creates this acts of violence. What's the relationship now that creator has with their creation. And, and even though they had written the story or came up with the idea you know, it was a passion project, it's something they love, it's something they poured their heart and soul into. Um, How do they feel now that that passion project inspired the deaths of, you know, for J.D. Salinger, John Lennon, for Rebecca um, Schaefer, this actress in um, LA, uh, potentially it helped inspire Hinckley to try to kill Reagan. What's that accountability and responsibility that the author has for their work inspiring somebody else to do something horrific, and to me that was something that I really wanted to explore.
0: I think it's it's interesting, and I think Lennon had a tough time. John Lennon did. If you, there's a documentary of him, just people living in his backyard at his home, yeah, and he would just feed them, and there he had all these questions about philosophy, and he's just like, I'm just, I'm a rock star, <laughs> you know. You're, you're asking me, I wrote a song, and you should look for other ways, but these people are just starving for an answer. And I yeah, think that's. A nice way, especially for a writer, how do you come, you you, you group, made something that has its own legs, yeah, and people interpret it differently, and you try oh no, no, but then it grows organically to something where people get their wrong interpretation of it, and it hurts a lot of people.
1: Well, it you know there was a there was a documentary that I watched. Um a few years back while I was working on Infernal. And ironically, the last time you and I had sat down, yeah, I was yeah. starting to work on the idea because I actually even listened to our podcast uh, a few weeks ago and I'm like, oh yeah, I'm talking about Infernal Machine right there. <laughs> um, right. And so- well, it's still in our catalog if anybody wants a podcast. Yeah, yes, oh yeah, it's and, and yeah, and it's, I'm not gonna swear as much. I'm trying to, you know, just because of my mother's listening to this. <laughs> um, but the thing that, I, I'd watch this documentary on the guy who wrote, um, the um, uh, anarchist cookbook. And it, and now this guy this guy wrote the book when he was nineteen and he didn't really even really write the book he basically was taking how to make a pipe bomb how to avoid surveillance and, it was like assembly line exactly and he put it into almost like this like manual you know kind of thing and now the guy is, you know that book came out like I think in the late seventies early eighties now the guy lives over in France and he's a teacher for ch- with children um, that have like learning disabilities and the documentary was constantly asking him. Do you have, do you feel any responsibility? Do you have any accountability? Is there any guilt? Because here are 40 different crimes that have taken place in the last 30 years from Columbine to all these different things where, where did you learn how to make a pipe bomb? Well, I read it in the anarchist cookbook. Like, where did you learn how to do this? Well, I read it in the anarchist cookbook. And it's going back to that author going, is there any responsibility or any guilt that you helped these people create this act of violence, and the guy couldn't answer the question. And I think the reason he couldn't answer it is because I think it's a question that he's known the answer for thirty years, but can't say it out loud. You know, probably feels it, but and carries it, but he can't admit to it.
0: Right, because it's 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 very dangerous. Because like you said, it's out there, but so yeah. many people have different ways to interpret things.
1: Yeah, yeah. and I think that. That then goes into the old, like, you know, with the Bruce Cogburn character in Infernal is, you know, and with any creator is like, did I put that in there? It was that was there a frequency that I just inherently put into this that I didn't even know that I was aware of doing. And to me, that is always something that, you know, you can say, well, I didn't mean it to be interpreted that way. But there's got to be a part of you that goes, but do I? like right. is 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 there a part of me that feels this way that maybe i was even subconsciously fooling myself to put it in there to embed that kind of frequency into my work that other people only a few select few can pick up on that frequency or is it just clearly madness that the person that read my book would have been inspired by a Taylor Swift song if it wasn't my book? You know, it would be something else that would give them permission to do something horrific, you know?
0: Right. Because if it's me, that's the catalyst or they're finding something to start their engine. Yeah. Or an excuse to start their engine, or something like
1: that. Well, you look Definitely. at that now. Yeah, you look at like from the former president and what he's saying, and he's not literally telling people to go out and do things, but he's saying enough to inspire them to read between the lines for them to go. I think he's telling me and that then I should
0: say I'm. He can divorce himself from any responsibility.
1: Exactly. So it, it really, you know, I think there's no, you know, it's all gray. I don't think there's any black and white. I think there's tons of gray, but I think we all have to be somewhat responsible and be somewhat accountable with our actions. And more importantly, we should be accountable and responsible for our words. Because I think a lot of people say, we well, yeah, yeah, words." That in the
0: movie. That, that's yeah, great speech.
1: So. Words are cheap, but at the same time, the right set of words can make a man do just about anything. Mm-hmm. And, And, you know, and we see that with, you know, just the entire history of our species, words have done a lot of damage. And so we have to be a little bit more um, conscious of of the words that we use.
0: Right. Yes, I absolutely agree. So with the writing of The Infernal Machine, uh, when was the final script for you, you felt finished?
1: Well, it's not done yet.
0: (laughs) Like, like literally the the, the movie, the
1: movie's never done. It's just taken away from you. Right. Um, I love Kurt
0: The story. uh, You never ends. It just, you just stop writing. You just stop
1: writing, you know? So, (laughs) you know, I, I had, you know, it took me about, it took me about, about six to eight weeks to write the first 80 pages. That just flew out of me because I think the thing is my, my partner in crime, Emily Kaplan, like for probably six months, all I was talking about was this movie. And so I wasn't even writing yet. I was telling her the story yeah. and every day I would come up with a new idea and I'd say, what if you did this? And then this happens. And and then Emily would give me her two cents on it. Uh, and a lot of the, the, the final creation of the film is a lot is to her credit, even though she's not credited as one of the writers. She was the one that went, no, Bruce wouldn't have, wouldn't um, install a security system. He'd get a dog, you know, or Bruce wouldn't have a nine millimeter gun. He would have a revolver. He doesn't trust advanced um, machinery, you know,
0: I'd love that part of it. And almost he goes, Regresses. Yeah. Even yeah. externally
1: regresses. Yeah. And so, you know, it took, it took about eight weeks to write. Yeah. About eight weeks to write the first 80 pages and then another year and a half to two years to write the last 25. Okay. And once we had a script that was in pretty good shape that, that I felt comfortable with that my producers felt comfortable with um, our sales agent, Richard guardian made a comment to me. He said, Hey, I'm friends with guy Pierce and I've worked with guy on different projects you know, Guy loves complicated, tragic characters. Would you be interested in me sending the script to Guy? And, you know, I mean, what filmmaker would say no? Yeah. You know, it's like what? Guy is just a phenomenal actor. And, you know, I mean, people know him from Memento and Priscilla and, um, uh, um, uh, oh my God, Elliot Rav, Confidential. Ravenous
0: and all these. But Ravenous, characters. but
1: I look at him from The Proposition and, you know, The Rover and some of his more independent stuff that I just think he's an amazing actor. Oh my
0: God, if you haven't seen The Proposition.
1: The Proposition. Oh my God. Go it's back. The Proposition is, and that's his favorite movie as well. We talked quite a bit about that when we first talked and so Richard had delivered the script um, to Guy and the next thing I know, guys texting richard going i need to talk to this writer i know he's also directing it and i jump on a zoom with guy like a week later and it's a two-hour conversation and him and i are just like a house on fire just getting along and he's like dude i love this script i i could play this part tomorrow um i really want to do it you know i hope that you're interested in me playing bruce cogburn because i would love to play bruce that's wonderful and yeah and so for me it was great because you know I had that kind of momentum uh, with Guy. And then from there, oh, yeah. we were then off to the races.
0: It's good it's because we know movies are not, an in- even though you're the writer, director, movies are have many different components to it. And yeah. you have, I think if you have people that are in front of the camera that are just equally passionate as behind, it can definitely work.
1: Well, it's one of the things that you have to just be honest with yourself and go, nobody gives a shit about Andrew Hunt. right. As a filmmaker, as a writer, you just have to be, I say this to my students when I teach, I'm like, look, here's the deal. Nobody gives a shit about your movie. You have to make them give a shit about your movie. And so, you know, I felt like I had a pretty strong script that was going, going out to get actors. Having Guy attached all of a sudden made it real because now people were no longer going, yeah, it's a good script. They're now going, yeah, it's a good script. And Guy really likes it. So now that Guy likes it, it allows us to then bring in Alice Eve and then Alice Eve attaches herself to it. And then Jeremy Davies comes in and he attaches himself to it. And then Alex Petifer comes in and Alex attaches himself to it. And now we're building this project that initially, I think the producers were like, oh, if we're lucky, we can you know get to this maybe distribution company or this distribution company. And then we found ourselves in a bidding war where we had Universal and Lionsgate and um, Saban and IFC and all these different distributors that like I grew up watching their movies. Now they're competing now they're on who's going to take Infernal Machine. And I'm just, every other day, I'm getting calls from my producers. They're like, well, you know, chap, IFC's coming in and they want domestic and Universal wants international. And you're almost, you, you feel like you're kind of, this isn't real, people are punking you. And you're getting
0: a little dizzy,
1: Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And then, and then at the last minute, you know, all of a sudden, you know, Paramount comes in and the way that movies are usually financed is that you're selling the movie in different regions across the world to accumulate the budget to go and make the film. So Germany will give you X amount of dollars. Okay. That X amount of dollars put to the production of the film. Japan will give you X amount of dollars. So you're hoping that by the time you have sold the world, let's say, that you have enough money that you can actually make the film and you look at domestic as your, if the movie does anything or if it's successful, that's where you can maybe make your money back, you know, um, your profit basically. And a
0: little bit of money to make your next
1: movie. Yeah, and, and when Paramount came in, Initially, the producers were like, oh, what are you interested in? Are you interested in domestic or are you interested in international? And Paramount said, no, 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 we're interested in the whole thing. We want to buy the whole thing. And uh, and they're like, we just have one stipulation. We just need to talk to the writer-director and then we'll make our decision from there so that you get this call back from the producers going, okay, so you got a call with Paramount tomorrow. Uh, we're not trying to put any pressure on you, <laughs> but just to let you know that, <laughs> like today, yeah. if you don't do a good, good job at this interview um, with Paramount, Paramount, it's all over so you know um so thankfully that didn't happen um we got along great and then they were like yeah we we want the whole film and so wonderful. it's been it's been great
0: wonderful uh, the next step was how did you i mean you didn't you you filmed it overseas if I'm yes
1: right. how, what, how did that come about it um we shot the film in portugal and the, the, the idea, I mean, I would love to say the main reason we shot in Portugal is because of the locations and because of this oh, and because of that. But I, love, I, love,
0: I love that. You want the artist answer or yeah, the real yeah. Answer? No, exactly.
1: <laughs> because you just want to be honest. And yeah. the real reason was money. Um, Portugal had a really good tax incentive to bring in film productions to make films in Portugal. Yeah. Uh, southern Portugal, which is called the Algarve, they are building the studio there called Movie Box. One of our other producers attached to the project, uh, um, Julian Hicks, um, basically that's his, basically baby is building this studio down in Southern Portugal. Um, so it's about like about 150, 200 miles from, Al- uh, from Lisbon, which is the capital of Portugal. I, I look at, I look at Portugal as almost like the California of Europe because the way it's shaped and everything.
0: It's, it's Yeah. The, the coastline uh,
1: yeah. Yeah. And so, so we, we, um, so they, so Lionel, the lead producer called me up and said, Hey chap, do you think. You could make this movie in Southern Portugal. The film is set in Southern California. We're in the midst of a pandemic. So I can't just jump on a plane and fly to Portugal to location scout. The coolest idea that we came up with Emily and I did was that I have an Oculus quest Two, like, you know, the, the VR goggles and there's an app called wanderer, which basically taps into Google maps to street view of all over the world. So I'm literally in my underwear in the middle of my living room with a set Doing of scout scouting, right? <laughs> with a set of VR goggles on, looking around and going, you know, and what we would do is we would look at certain parts of the Algarve in Portugal. And then we would immediately hop over to Southern California, about 45 minutes southwest of um, the Mojave Desert. And look at the topography there yeah. and then jump back to Portugal and look at the rolling hills there and go, okay, yeah, this, I totally buy that we can make this into California. And so that's how we started, you know, and what was funny is when I would then reach out to the um, uh, location managers in Portugal. And I'm like, look, man, I need you to go down route 185. And then I need you to go down that dirt road and go another mile down that dirt road and take pictures. And the the location manager is going, first off, you've never been to Portugal. I'm like, correct. He's like, how the hell do you know about this (laughs) dirt road that is, and I'm like, because Google Maps won't let me go any farther on that road. So I need to know what's over that hill, you know? And so that was how we that's how we got the initial confidence to be able to pack up and go to Portugal with the intent of making a film set in southern california
0: during a pandemic
1: during a pandemic, during
0: a pandemic. so how long was it uh were you shooting in
1: portugal or uh, well ironically and and I, I would say this to any to any director you know when you have an actor like guy pierce the first thing you want to do is talk about schedule to them before you talk about schedule to your line producers and your money people, because everyone's always trying to make movies with as least amount of days as possible. Right. So I knew from how I broke down the film that we would need five weeks. I knew the line producer on the other side of the world wanted to give me four weeks. Right now that's a week. That's You know, for a director, time is currency. It's like, if you could, if you asked me, how many days do you really want to make Infernal Machine without a set? 365 would be great. Like if I had 365 days, I think that would give me enough time to make the movie the way I want to make it. Well, that's not real and realistic. So having a conversation with guy right out of the gate, he was like, hey man, like, what do you, how many weeks are you thinking? And I said, well, I'm thinking five. The line producer over there is telling me four. But if you say five, if I can get you to go five weeks, because I don't want to rush this. And even though the film was eventually rushed when we were making the movie, it's just ne- a natural part, it just, it just is. Yeah. And for guy going, yeah, then we're doing it for five weeks. And then I could then turn to the producers and go, okay, guys, we got guy for five weeks. And so then we were able to control the the actual right. schedule to shoot the film for five weeks.
0: Right. And I think the next step, if anybody's out there want to be a director, you have to think, you know, like shot list and everything, what, how you want to approach it because there's multiple scenes at the telephone booth. Yeah. But it's different parts of the film. Yes. But you're there at the telephone booth. So you have to get like, what are you going to do with the telephone booth? Are you going to break it now? or? Yeah. So you have to manage all those little details because it's different areas of the film, but it's still that location.
1: Yeah. You have to, you know, the thing is, is that, the amount of prep that I did for Inferno before I got in a plane and flew to Portugal, you know, I had about a month, a little over a month for pre-production. So I was there early June and we were rolling late July uh, to start shooting the film. Yeah. So I had a good month. But even before that month, I had spent about four months in storyboarding and designing the entire film. And so that's working with a storyboard artist every day. We would, you know, every other day we would sit down, we would talk about the blocking for certain scenes. We would only do like 25 shots a day. You know, just so then we didn't feel like we were cramming everything in and rushing, that we could take our time and really design it properly. Yeah. Um, and that, and at that point, I also had gotten Sarah Dean, our cinematographer, on board. So Sarah and I were having like weekly like Zoom chats where I would be sharing her boards and talking about the blocking. And we would really talk out the movie way before we ever even met ourselves and we met in person when we were in Portugal. So The whole time you're going, okay, we're returning to this phone booth, um, you know, maybe six or seven times throughout the film. So how are we going to make the first phone call different than the third phone call, different than the sixth phone call? Like, And so that's when you just start going, okay, well, what's this scene about? What's the focus on this scene? Is this scene about the first time Bruce picks up the phone and dials the number? Well, that's a different type of way of covering it than the fourth time that he's, now we're familiar and comfortable with the phone booth. So is the Bruce Cogburn character. And then we get into when Bruce is drunk in the phone booth. Well, that's a completely different approach to even the editing of of that scene compared to the other scenes. So you're constantly asking yourself, what makes this scene different? And it also then pushes you back as a writer, because if the answer is there is nothing about this scene that's any different than the other scenes, then you have to start having the question, well, do I even need this scene to begin with? Yes. So it's this process where you're stripping things out, um, feeling what you absolutely need to have, how you need to shoot it, how you need to let it unfold, what the audio and the sound design is going to sound like when you're putting together that scene. And that's, and the great thing is, I heard this just recently, that's the worst case scenario. So when you're walking onto the set, you haven't even started working with Guy Pierce yet. You haven't even really seen what the actual set's gonna look like or how the sun is gonna be playing in the sky or- Yeah, because it's
0: exterior. uh, Yeah, yeah,
1: everything. You have no idea what those things are until they're in front of you. So what you're bringing to the film set is the worst case scenario of that scene. And then all of a sudden, Guy Pierce walks in that phone booth and starts delivering those lines. And all of a sudden you realize- Oh my God! That was like, (laughs) this is amazing, right? Because the one thing you you have in your mind's eye what the performance could be, but then when you actually see someone a master craftsman like him deliver that scene or 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 do that take, and you're just in awe, you know that you're going that that you that that that
0: hesitation he does. Oh,
1: he's so good and. It's so my min- you don't if you can't cap if you just that little scene. He is a surgeon, yeah. man. He comes in to a scene. He is number one, one of the kindest and sweetest people you would want to work with, uh, you know. And you know, you have that conversation with him with what he's thinking, what you're thinking. Yeah. How you know? I, I never look at guy as an actor. I always looked at him as a partner because you know he's like in every scene of the movie. The whole movie's about his character. Um, it was it was it was a partnership. Like we were both like parents raising a kid. And so every day we would meet and we would talk through things and his opinions, my opinions, sometimes they would contrast, sometimes we would disagree and you know he would win or I would win. Or it didn't <laughs> matter. It really, really honestly didn't matter who won. It mattered just we were constantly checking one another to make sure that we were, you know, we were being honest and truthful. And and especially for Guy That's, it feels like that to him is the core of anything he does. It's got to be real. Like I got to believe that I would go across the room and do this. And if I can't go, if I can't believe that, I don't know if I could do that, but I could probably do it here because I believe that this character would not cross the room to do that. He would do it right here. And it was a real learning lesson for me because I've never worked with someone of that caliber before. So my thought was, oh, I'm the director. I'm supposed to come in with all the answers. I'm supposed to have everything laid out in my head. Everything is controlled. (laughs) And all of a sudden, you have this actor that comes in and goes, you know, who, his body of work, I mean, he's worked with everybody, you know? And then you got Jeremy Davies, who's worked with everybody, and Alice Eve and Alex Pettifer, and they're coming in with ideas. And their ideas are different than what your thoughts were. But all of a sudden, their ideas are better. And you immediately take the ego that the director right. has and you put them in the trunk of the car and you tell them to shut the fuck up. <laughs> right.
0: Well, I think it's, it's that process of, I didn't see it that way. And you almost and you almost like when I, especially when I did a director and I have actors come with the ideas like, Oh my God, this character is human. Yeah. And it's almost like the humans talking to me. Then you understand. And it's almost like now this character's a living, breathing person that actually, I think I do this and I do that. And you're like, I agree. Yeah. I mean, now it's a human person that you're navigating around.
1: Well, it's the thematic that I am always drawn to is Frankenstein, the creator versus creation. And why I'm so drawn to that is, you know, being a creator, I write stories, I make films, I, you know, I'm making things and I'm making characters, I'm creating characters. And it was great that, you know, you'd written this film you have these really interesting characters. Now you have these actors that are embodying these characters. And now they're taking these characters to places that you never even thought of as a writer. And now they're coming back with opinions of their own. And I don't mean that in a negative. I mean, that is your character's going, hey, I know you wrote me thinking that I always liked the color red, but to be honest, I hate the color red. (laughs) I prefer green. So is it okay that, you know, and you almost feel like it's like you're a parent that's going, oh, I thought I knew my kid better I thought the only person that knew their kid better than anyone would be me. And you're going, no, 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 no. Guy knows Bruce Cogburn better than anyone. Now he does. You yeah, know. Yeah, and, yeah. and the only other person that knows Bruce just as well as he does to a certain degree is me. So we can have that conversation about Bruce or Alice Eve and Higgins or Alex Pettifer and Dwight Tufford or, you know, um, Elijah, uh, Jeremy Davies' character, is that we can, but at the same time, they have to make it their own. And it was that idea that finally clicked with me because for me if i'm pitching you a film that i'm working on or pitching a story i have to fully believe in that story or else i can't pitch it you know if i feel that there's a part in the story that's weak i need to workshop that until i feel confident in it to then present it to you acting is the same thing they're going look if I don't believe this character would do this thing here, I can't do it because it's not truthful. And if it's not truthful and it looks forced, then it looks like bad acting. And that's the last thing a director wants is to watch a scene in the movie and go, oh, man, that acting is not very good there. Thankfully, I didn't have that problem at all in Infernal. I, my actors, you know, uh, each one of them, I couldn't be more proud of what each one of them did and how different each actor and each performance is that, you know, I, I'm like the luckiest son of a bitch on the planet because, you know, for your first movie, you know, real budget, big movie, and you've got Pierce, Eve, Pettifer and Jeremy Davies in it. You're just like, are you, How? what the hell, you know, <laughs> is this real, you know, and so you just run with it. Uh, we got to take a short break, but I just, for our audience's,
0: audience, uh, before we take a break, I just have one question. Were you able to do rehearses
1: on table reads? You know, that would be, if there's one thing that I could do, the, 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 the one, what did you learn? The, the learning thing is I wish I would have had the time to do a big table read with all the actors because that would have just helped us dial things in a little bit. Sadly, we had to dial that in when we we're on the set, which ate into a little bit of our time. But because I was lucky enough, the first week of shooting was just Guy, then the second week was Guy and Alice, then third week was just Guy again, yeah. then the fourth week it was Alex Pettifer, and then the fifth week it was Jeremy Davies that we were able to really get an idea of like, so when a new actor came into the mix, they were already kind of seeing how the whole world was unfolding. But it would have been nice, and I always feel a little bad for Alice and for Jeremy and for Alex, because Guy and I had been like roommates for like weeks before they came in. So there was a shorthand that Guy and I had that I felt really bad that I that I wish I would've had that shorthand with the rest of them right at the beginning. And that would've, that's why I look at table reads of like all of us in a room talking yeah. through it would've, would've been incredibly helpful. But at the same time, these guys are just such professionals that they're like, Andy, you know what? The mere fact that you haven't changed the script, you know, a day before I'm coming in the set, <laughs> is so a, huge, a small little thing they're right? like is a huge plus or change the location yeah there, right? they're like yeah. so you know what forgiven you're forgiven for that
0: or change hairdressers or whatever <laughs> Yeah, people like that all right we're gonna take a short break and back more with andrew hunt hey welcome
1: to the last comic shop podcast a comic book podcast that actually talks about comics yep each week we open the shop up and read and discuss a comic Sometimes we pair that up with comic book movies or TV shows? We're not. Lots of times it's just comic books and sound effects. Oh yes, definitely lots of sound effects. So tune in on all the major podcasting platforms. The Last Comic Shop Podcast or check out our library of evergreen shows at www.lastcomicshoppodcast.com. Welcome back and now more with the show.
0: All right, we're back with Andrew Hunt, and today uh, there's another actor we haven't talked about yet.
1: Um, yeah, and it would be Alex Pettifer. Yeah. Uh, and Alex is a phenomenal actor. Uh, he was actually the last actor that we got on board with the film, okay. and we were we were literally about two weeks from shooting, and you know, one of our producers, um, Julian Hicks, was recommending Alex, and having the conversation with Alex, and, and talking through the character, and 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 this. Relationship that I had with Alex just is another is just another example of what actors bring to a film and really fill in all the details and all the little nooks and crannies that yeah. maybe you as a writer or you as a director didn't really think about. And so the the character that Alex is playing in the film is Dwight Tufford. And Dwight Tufford is the character who had read The Infernal Machine 25 years ago and committed, you know, and caused this horrific act, you know, at a university killing 13 people with a, high, with a high-powered rifle. And initially in the film, I had the character Dwight Tufford when he read the book at being like 25 years old. So sure, being like yeah. in his mid-20s and Alex is in his mid thirties. So if you do the math, we'd have to age Alex up in order for Alex to play the older version of Dwight Hufford, because at some point in the film, uh, our character, Bruce Cogburn played by Guy Pierce, goes to a Not maximum me. security, yeah. you know, penitentiary to actually confront the guy who read his book and committed this violent act. Yeah. And I remember talking to Alex on the phone, and even the script that I'd originally written, I always had this ear for the Dwight Tufford character to have a Southern accent. And Alex pushed back on that and said, Andy, if he does a Southern accent, then we're only isolating one part of America that this person, we're, we're almost attaching a Southern accent to a mental illness that it, it, would, it would be more interesting is if the Dwight Tufford character had this very generic American accent. So that this Dwight Tufford character could have come from anywhere. He could have been from Colorado. He could have been from Atlanta. He could have been from California. It's almost like, let's make this character the boy next door.
0: It almost gives him a sense of anonymous. Uh,
1: Yes, yeah. Yeah. So you're you're just kind of getting that idea that it could happen to anybody. The second thing that he said, which... Which is what really just, again, my brain just caught on fire when he threw this out there. And he said, Andrew, what if this Dwight Tufford was 17 years old when he committed these murders instead of being in his mid-20s? And when he said that, man, um, immediately I went, oh, my God, there wasn't 13 victims that day. There were 14. Because when you're in your mid-20s and you commit a horrible act. We as society look at that 25 year old and go, well, you should have known better. You're, 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 you're mature enough. You're in a 25. Your
0: brain's already fully developed. Totally.
1: So there's no empathy. There's, there's just judgment. You committed this crime. You knew better. You do the time when it's a 17 year old, or when I should say, when it's a teenager that commits the same crime, we have a different approach to how we judge that person. We want to look at how they were raised. We want to look at where they grew up. We we wanna find an excuse besides just evil, right? And when Alex brought that up to me, you know, immediately I again, this is the thing I love about working with all these creative people that have these great ideas and they're all putting their spices and flavor into the soup. Is all of a sudden I'm going, oh my God, this is a character that I now have more empathy for than I ever did before if I knew that this is a 17-year-old kid that committed this crime if we see a 17-year-old photograph a, a photograph of a 17-year-old yeah. Dwight Tufford it's more tragic because not only you know again it's not only did bruce with this book cause 13 people to die But when you're looking at the killer at the time of the murders and he's a kid that looks like he should barely be able to drive, there is just an absolute, there's more tragedy to the entire scenario. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Cause it's, it's another casualty that, yeah. Totally. Yeah. I love the interrogation scene. There's many different ways to shoot an interrogation scene, like two camera, one over the shoulder and stuff like that. But you did, it kind of balanced it. We, what was really almost symmetrical
1: yeah we um you know between like sarah dean my cinematographer who is the queen of the anamorphics that's that's her nickname <laughs> is the queen of the anamorphics um I love that we uh i can wait
0: for the, that comic book right yeah, <laughs> yeah totally
1: i mean i i i mean i could spend hours just talking about how much i absolutely adore and love and honor and completely am just in awe of of that woman and her eye she's amazing But when we were filming that, you know, we wanted to make sure that we were getting traditional coverage, which is close ups over the shoulders, and then these beautiful, symmetrical kind of one side against the other. And what was really interesting about that scene in particular is how we edited it, how we cut it together. Uh, my editor, Jeremy Wannick and I, we've been working together for 10 years. And so we have such a shorthand with one another and we spend more time talking about story than we do talking about particular editing. You know, trim two frames here, three frames there. Where We're very, Jeremy's always trying to figure out what's in the actor's head, what's in the character's head, and then cutting the scene around that. And what was really interesting about that scene in particular was the first pass of the cut felt long. And we're watching it and we're going, why is this just not working? You know, it just it, you got these great performances between Guy and Alex. Why is it not working? And, you know, we went outside. We talked for about 45 minutes. And we realized, and this is very much what Hitchcock t- teaches us, the biggest thing in the frame has the most power. And so we went back into the cut and we realized we have a single close up on each one of these actors. And then we have a wider medium shot, like an over the shoulder, like so over Alex's shoulder on Guy. And that's a little wider of a shot, you know. And so we've got these two different, you know, close ups and over the shoulders. And we came to this manifesto of whoever is in control of the scene gets the close up whoever's alpha gets the close-up. Whoever's beta gets the -the over-the-shoulder. So most of that scene is a close-up of Alex Pettiford because he's in control of the conversation until Guy challenges him. And when Guy challenges him, then we give Guy the close-up. And then we do the -the over-the-shoulder on Alex, so now Alex is a little smaller in the scene. But the character, Dwight Tufford, does not like being challenged, so he pushes right back. So once we decided that that was going to be the visual kind of like uh, uh, visual landscape that we were going to play with in the editorial. And we put that scene together. Not only did it feel better, it felt shorter, even though it was the same length yeah. as the initial scene.
0: Yeah. I think a great analogy for that, if you want, everybody wants to go back uh, north by northwest, when Kerry Grant finally gets kidnapped to the mansion, and it's in the study, that scene where they just put him in the study, shut the door. But then the bad guys come in and talk to him and you have a balance of him and James Mason and the camera rotates equally to them. But it's always Cary Grant has the biggest frame in the movie, even though he's being the most threatened. Yeah. And he holds that and you have an overhand shot and everything, but he's still the most important part of the film, even though you have surrounded by four bad guys. Yeah. To the point that I love the scene where the the lady knocks on the door to interrupt, you know, the guests are here. But he shuts it from the point of view of the bad guy going like, you know... you're interrupting good stuff. Yeah. To the point of a lower, almost like the camera's on the, on the sofa looking up like, this is, you know, give her an angle that we're just annoyed with her. Yeah. But that analogy talking about who dominates the scene is Cary Grant in that scene, even though he's being threatened by four other guys in the room. You don't care. It's Cary Grant in the middle of the room with his great looking good.
1: I also think it's because we are seeing the movie through Cary Grant's eyes. Cary Grant is the vehicle. For this emotional roller coaster that Hitchcock is building. Okay. So, for us as the audience, we want to know how Cary Grant is reacting, even when he's being threatened. Like, I tend to find that if you're shooting a scene between two characters and they're having a conversation, by the first 30 seconds, I have a pretty good idea what the character looks like when they're talking. So, even if I cut to you right now, I have a pretty good idea by seeing how I'm throwing my hands in the air and waving them around. That's 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 what you're going to imagine as you're hearing my voice, even though we're seeing a close up of you. Wow. And I find it's usually the person's reaction to the information that's more interesting than the person that's delivering the information. And especially if the character is holding their cards close to their vest. So. You know, for example, in that scene between Guy and Alex, yeah. you know, there are secrets that Guy is holding back on that he's not revealing. And we as the audience, we know some of those secrets. It's
0: called dramatic irony. people. It, yeah, right? yeah. Yeah.
1: And so so to me, yeah. like I would always kind of, you know, I say this kind of lightly, but it's true. It's like the actor's job is to hide their secrets And then my job as a filmmaker is to go like, it's like hide and seek. It's like go in the house and hide your deepest, darkest secret. The character's deepest, darkest secret somewhere in the house. And my job as a filmmaker is to use camera and sound and music and all these other elements to slowly go through that house to find the secret. And you got to find it at the right time in the story. So then you're not showing it too early or you're not showing it too late. But You know, that's why I love actors like Guy and like Alice and Alex and Jeremy that are hiding everything. And you can tell there's something else going on underneath what they're saying and what they're doing. And that just makes them much more interesting to watch from an audience standpoint.
0: Right, because from Bruce uh, Carborn's he, he's trying to cipher information now navigate it around uh, how much do you know about me exactly and I don't want to tell you everything about me I'm trying to hold you yeah
1: this yeah. is I mean you're looking at a character who has been living in isolation for 25 years who probably hasn't had a normal conversation or any our conversation with any depth in probably 25 years so taking this character out of their comfort zone, which is like their nice house in the middle of the desert, and you put them in a maximum security prison, or you put them into a nightclub scene, or you put them in a dumpster, or you put them in all these different places. All of a sudden, you're just kind of, you know, you're you're watching to see how they're going to react to the new environment and new surroundings. Yeah, yeah. Um, there's one interesting thing,
0: as I watched the film and took notes, there's not a lot of intus- intimacy in the movie. Yeah. It's very much all of the characters have a sense of detachment from each other. Yes, and it's kind of intentional I think on your part. Almost well, like there's not a, there's always constantly a certain I want a space between everybody.
1: Well, you know, it's interesting you say that because even in our blocking and the way we shot things, we really wanted to isolate Bruce. I mean, the stories about this reclusive writer. So, for example, a lot of the ways that we shot it, you know, if Bruce is talking to one character and we need to get that character's coverage, we would shoot over Bruce's shoulder onto that other actor. But then when we would turn around to do the reverse coverage on guy, I would always shoot him alone. And I always wanted to isolate him and really, you know, because this is, you know, kind of going back, this is a guy who has been alone for 25 years. Yeah. So the more isolated he feels, And it also shows like this layer of despair when it's like, who's helping me, who's not, you know, um, the danger that he's in, you know, his only real relationship in the entire film is a dog, you know, and And it's still kind of awkward. Yeah, it is, because how does a guy, you know, what I love and this is what I love about the entire creative process is when I was originally coming up with the idea, like I thought of, you know, and I think I might have just repeated this earlier, but where you know, he gets a security system because all of a sudden packages are now showing up at his front door. And okay, somebody's on my property. So I'm going to I'm gonna go get one of those um, ADT guys to set up like a new security system. And Emily, my partner, um, an associate producer, she's like, no, 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 this guy would never trust anybody else on his property besides himself. He would get a dog. And so yeah. we're like, okay. So now he's getting a German shepherd. And what I love about that, idea that Emily threw at me is how it's how it fits so perfectly because here is Bruce Cogburn wanting to buy a security system, which is the dog. And it turns out to be his best friend, you know, and there's still that distance there's still yeah, it it's doesn't like, really pet him or anything. No, no, there's only one time that he <laughs> pets the dog in the movie, which we don't want to talk about, <laughs> but, Damn. but it's, but it's that how does someone that detached from reality or from, from humanity. Um, How do they come back into the world and try to be part of it again? And that to me, you know, again, we were having this conversation outside about locations. And there was a moment once where we were, you know, picking, we were getting ready to shoot in this one location. And guy walks over to me and goes, man, I love these locations that we're shooting. And this is great. How are you making these decisions? Like, why is it this location? And my answer to him was, I try to find the most uncomfortable place to put Bruce Cogburn. And if I look at a location and I go, man, Bruce would hate to be here. yeah, Then I'm like, we're shooting here. you know, and Because again, my job as the director and as the writer is I need to beat the living shit out of our protagonist. Our protagonist must suffer. They must go through all the trials and tribulations. They must... Their their sanity must be challenged. Their physicality must be challenge, challenged. Mm-hmm. Everything about them has to be challenged to the point that they're going to break or they're going to snap. And somehow they find a way to get themselves out of it because that's exactly what we do every single day, being human beings. Yeah, yeah,
0: I agree. Uh, because your, your question in the movie is, "Who am I? Who am I?" But yeah. I love my 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 always my, how I phrase it is, "Are you searching for your authentic self?" Yeah. And the next part is, where does it hurt? Obviously, we talked about that. You show definitely where it hurts. But also, you take risks. You're not writing safe. No. You have to take risks. And not, you have to find, would Bruce not like this? Yeah. Dead? Yeah. Well, I, you know... Because he already established his safe environment. Yeah. Well, what the hell's the point of having a story if he's just going to stay in there and drink himself to death?
1: Absolutely. I mean, you don't, you know, and, and I think that comes back to the writing where, you know, when you come from the independent background, which is all of us, you know, I don't have 20 films behind my belt to prove what I can do. So the star of my movie has to be the script even before I get stars attached to be in my movie. And they're going to gamble with you, right? I've got someone like Guy Pierce, who has m- made some amazing movies, who is throwing his weight behind me. A guy he doesn't know, a guy who has no track record in feature films. And the only reason he's thrown his hat in the ring is he's going, dude, I love this script and I love this character and you seem to know what you're talking about. And to me, that's where I always push back to people when they heard about the film and I came back from Portugal and I finished the film and they're always asking me, well, how did you get Guy Pierce in your movie? And and without sounding like an arrogant prick, the answer is I wrote a good script and I wrote a script that was different, something unique, something that I'm always thinking about the audience. I want the audience to go on a emotional roller coaster and that is the star of my movie and that star will then bring in all these other creative people to come in because especially if it's something they haven't seen before they're coming in going oh this is exciting no i I like i like that because
0: i it's it's funny I, i saw when i watched the movie i thought i knew the trajectory yeah and it's, I love it when I don't know it when you think you know what's going to happen and you don't and that's why we love movies. Absolutely, when you think, I know this. I've seen this. I, I know it's going to happen. I, I think I know the trajectory. Yeah. yeah. And you have to adjust everybody's trajectory to what it is. And I love the beginning that I know Guy Pierce is in the movie. In the beginning of the movie, I know he's, You don't see him. Yeah. You just see a little bits of him. Yeah. yeah. And I, I go and you're almost like as a person in audience, like where did. Just give me the shot, Just Give man. me the shot, yeah, yeah. So you already have that anxiety, like, what does he look like? What is he doing? And then yeah. you have that little bit of anxiety of, to the audience, like, just show him.
1: Yeah. Well, I, I tell you the reason why we did it that way for the beginning is that, you know, um, at the, the first, you know, first, like, you know, minute in the movie, you see parts of this character, but you don't see him yet. Yeah. And what you see him is in a gas station and he's going to make a phone call. And this phone call is he is going to leave the first voicemail or make the first call to this DeKent character. And this is the first time that he is going to announce this is Bruce Cogburn calling. Almost to the world. And to, the, to us as the audience. that's So when we were designing that opening, I'm like, I don't want to see Guy's face until he says, this is Bruce Cogburn. Because that's like, it's almost like Bruce... Is Bruce we're establishing, establishing this relationship this day, yeah, where, where Bruce, Bruce is the yeah, narrator to the audience. Yeah. And, it, and like, you're like, like, I am going to, like, it's, it's almost, almost like, like the Bruce Cogburn, Cogburn character is looking at the, the audience way. going, I am going to tell you a story and you know, and this story unfortunately happens to be about me and it's about me in this relationship with this, this Kent that keeps sending me these letters and is harassing me and bothering me. And I don't want to talk about the past because 25 years ago, 13 people died and I haven't been able to write another book since. And so that is, you know, that's the story that Bruce is telling us. And so our job as filmmakers Um, with the sound design, with the cinematography, with the acting, is to complement or contrast that path that he's on.
0: Oh, my two favorite words with C's. What's that? My two favorite words with C's, contrast and complement. Yes, Yes. because
1: those, if you know, that is, I think... It's funny that like, even when I'm teaching my students and and, and we're talking about like, what decisions do you make as a director or what decisions do you make as a writer when you're crafting a story and you always have to go with compliment and contrast. And if you can't compliment the idea or contrast or contrast the idea, don't do that. I don't do it. You know, it's because a film is an argument. Um, a film is a conversation, um, between the good and the, or I shouldn't even say the good and bad, but the conversation is about two different opposite points of view. Is this right? Or is this wrong? Um, and you should not get a yes or no answer. You should get a, well, maybe depends it could, you know, but you're constantly wanting to complement and contrast the idea. So for example, when Bruce is in control, the camera Acts a certain yeah. way. When all hell breaks loose, it goes, the goes the camera is now off the tripod, and now we're handheld, and now it's chaotic. Because and it was very easy to make that decision, because I'm going. Well, where is Bruce at mentally right now? Well, he's being shot at, so I don't know about you, but if anyone's shot at me. I'm pretty sure that I'd be rattled, you know? And I'm pretty sure that I'd be running away, fleeing like, you know, like a little kid. So what would the cinema... Cinematic language of that action be well the cameras hauling ass too because the the camera person doesn't want to get shot So that's the idea is that you're constantly and if you know your character and you know what your character is going through It makes the decisions for you as a director so much easier to make because you you're like well yeah that's complementing where he's at or that's contrasting um, where he wants to be and so it's something that you know I think a lot of the times especially interacting I think people tend to make it seem like it's magic and it's not magic it's just listening to your characters and making sure that you're defining and presenting them and either um, presenting them in a truthful way
0: yeah and then we always talk about it, and especially with critique. Movie logic is different from real logic. Absolutely, I mean, a lot of a lot of people deciphered like that doesn't make any sense. Well, in the movie world, it totally makes sense. And then, yeah, I think he really nailed the movie logic with this because it. it it fits perfect to all his character's attributes and And you believe it.
1: Yeah. And and I love, I love the details, man. Like that to me, you know, Oh, the scorpion. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. The scorpion is great. You know, the, the scorpion was really funny is that I was directing the scorpion. And so, um, you know, and I mean, I've directed Madagascar hissing cockroaches. I've, I've directed German shepherds. You know, I've, uh, there's some actors that I've directed that I would not, not anybody that was in infernal machine, Um, but you know, where, where people go, well, you directed scorpions. I'm like, I've directed worse. Uh, but no, the scorpion was great. The scorpion was, you know, we set the scorpion down and you know, the interesting thing about a scorpion is that if you tap the back of its, the back, if you tap its ass, it sounds really weird with a scorpion. The scorpion, scorpion will pivot because, because it doesn't like being bugged. Like, by are behind. you? Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know? And, you know, and we, um, you know, and it took about probably five minutes, you know, to, to and the whole time that I'm directing the scorpion. Guy is right behind the camera with his phone videotaping it. And I'm looking over at him and I'm going, and he's got this big smile on his face and I'm going, are you filming this because you think it's cool that I'm directing a scorpion or that you just want to get the footage of when this thing stings me? And he goes, uh, a little bit of both, mate, you know? And so, um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's finding all those like little flares and everything. And the scorpion was definitely one of them.
0: Yeah. I think small little things
1: help. Oh, it's because that's to me, you know, like, for example, without geeking out completely, all the stamps that are used in the movie is Robert Oppenheimer. And, you know, and Oppenheimer is the one who figured out how to split the atomic, uh, the the atom to make the nuclear bomb. It's a Frankenstein. There there it is right there. Right, you you know, it's
0: almost like a pen Once you figure that out, you can't put it, it back in. Yeah,
1: yeah. And then, you know, and then him realizing what he had done of like, oh, my God, I just gave the world the recipe for the end of the world. Yeah. And you know, so that creator versus creation, you try to see in every aspect of the film, and and you know, from you know the art direction and the the, the graffiti that's on the on the gas station to uh, to just just any anything in the film that I can just put my own little stamp into, and that it's this is a infernal machine prop. It's not just a prop, you know. Like Emily Kaplan um, was also one of our conceptual artists. Is that Emily's way of drawing and her illustration? illustrations and, and artwork is amazing. So, so I went to Emily and I said, you have to do the book cover for the Infernal Machine. And so she created this, you know, great like screaming mouth that it's almost like it's like this uh, you know like kind of you were mentioning Jacob's ladder yeah. kind of like that like you know a trapped soul in hell or a you know like that kind of idea and so like any time that I could bring people in or my composer Nathaniel Levin say when we were starting to do the music and the theme for Dwight Tufford it's like well he committed the crime when he was 17 so maybe his theme is a choir boy And then when we see the Dwight tougher 25 years later incarcerated, instead of like this, like, like alto, like boy in a choir, we hear this, Oh, like this, like really dark, you know, and then, you know, later on the film we're playing with it. So, you know, and, and, and I kept saying, boy, wouldn't it be great if like the, the chorus that Dwight's carrying, is almost like jacob marley with all the chains on him in you know a christmas carol where maybe those voices are the souls of the 13 people that he killed you know and and we sit there and, and play with different ideas and and even the 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 main instrument that we used for the bruce cogburn's um you know thematic which is this middle eastern fiddle that sounds very appalachian and has a very kind of like rustic kind of you know quality to it and it's just always trying to find these different creative ways of how to capture a character or a feeling and not use the same old same old that everyone else is using
0: yeah I, I love the story it's almost um, I love this it's very much like a noir yeah all ever compassing yeah. condemn yeah, yeah. All, every, it's, it's one of those like all condemnation but you're you're going you're, it's almost like you don't recognize it
1: yeah, it's we wanted to tell a story that I wanted to tell a character study film disguised as a psychological thriller, disguised as a mystery that you come in thinking like I don't like to be confined by genre. I think people that lean too far into genre it allows genre to own them rather than they own genre. And the only reason that genres exists is some people 25, 30, 40, 60 years ago, broke the rules. yeah, they did something and all of a sudden they went, oh, well, this is, this is film noir, you know? And you go, well, no, it's not. It's just, that's their interpretation of film noir. And, and I feel that the audiences nowadays are mature enough that we are constantly inundated by different genres, like different, you know, everything is mixed that we shouldn't we, we, you be truthful truthful to the story, and if the story wants to be a little psychological thriller, let it be. If it wants to be a little bit of a mystery, let it be. If it wants to be a comedy, for Christ's sakes, let it be. Because if you start, if it's original and unique to itself, then it can it can basically, it can live in genre and then live out of genre. And, and when we design The Infernal Machine, some of the comments that we get from it is, well, we don't really know where to put it. We, it's, it's a psychological thriller, but, but it's also really emotional. And it's also really this. And, 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 and I always say that wasn't by mistake. Like, that was by design. Like, we wanted to make a film that really skirted around the trappings of genre, but yet lean into the things that entice an audience to go, oh, that sounds dangerous. I'm interested in watching that, you know?
0: Right. It's, and then, like I said, it's not. It, doesn't, it seems like it should be a safe film, and it's not. No, I mean, it's that you think you're like, oh, it's all kind of components. But that's what the thing I like to take risks of subtractive from anything it could be attached to at a category. It stands on its own.
1: Yeah. 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 And we, we wanted to, you know, and, and it's a movie that's about some really big ideas. And, and I think that's the thing that I think will be the most shocking for the audience when they watch the film is you think the film's about one thing. And it is. But then there's going to be a point when there's more revealed. That, that, that this is, is a much bigger movie and, than than what, what was initially presented, presented to an audience. And, and for, for me, those are the kinds of movies that I love, that I'm walking in with a misconceived idea as to what I'm about ready to watch, like, like Cabin in the Woods or Nope, nope for example. Yeah. You know, you come in and you're like, okay. okay. I think it's going to be this. From the trailer, yeah. That's, yeah. that's what, what they're tell telling me what it is. And then you come in, you sit down, and you get that. You get that scratch, uh, that that it's scratched because the filmmaker goes, look, I know why you're here, so I'm going to answer these things. But to let you know, I just use those things as kind of a lore to bring you in to show you this really cool thing that, that, that no one's been talking about. And that is kind of the intent of what we wanted to do with the film. Yeah. Uh, before we go... what's new on the horizon for anything new for you coming up well yeah we um inferno has been quite a uh, quite a roller coaster ride and it's and, out there yeah, yeah and, and now that the, everyone gets to see it which is great you know and like I said you can see it um, on on demand um, and then eventually it'll roll into Paramount Plus and then go above and beyond from there and then it's in you know? the ether yes then it's in the ether I can't control it anymore the kids yep. the kids going to college he's he's you like know. what's in the story you can't control <laughs> yeah, you know I can't. I can't control what you know the words you put out in the world but um, so right now we're starting to kind of gear up for the next project that I'm going to be directing. It's called Dead Men, and uh, it's it's a uh, yeah, it's 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 a you know it's a zombie film, which is funny because people see Infernal and they're like, "What's next?" I'm like, "It's my next movie's called Dead Men." Oh, what's that about? I'm like, "It's a zombie film, and they go huh, Really? And then they ask you for the pitch, and you go, "Well." You know, zombie apocalypse happened, we won. And after we exterminated 99% of them, the last 1%, we cut them open, and found that the fungus that grows in their brain cures cancer. And now these things are the most prized possessions in our country. It
0: becomes Exactly,
1: you don't kill these things if you see one in your backyard. You don't kill it, you call up these dog catchers that are called dead men, and they come and take this off your property and bring it to like this maximum security, cattle ranch type of environment. And our film is about these old beat-up cowboys that used to wrangle cattle, and now they wrangle zombies. And so then when I tell them that story, then they go... Oh, shit. let me know, I wanna know more about that. So that's the next project um that uh, that you know I'll be hopefully directing. And uh, but most importantly right now, it's just I'm just beyond thrilled that uh, that the folks get to see um, to see what we've been doing for the last year and a half.
0: Well, I have to say on behalf of the show, congratulations. Thank you on Infernal Machine. Um I'm looking forward to seeing it again. Um, and definitely the minute details that we talked about before I see those little things again. And I'm looking forward, yeah, to see Dead Man. That'd be interesting. Dead Men. Dead Men <laughs> or Man.
1: <laughs> no, 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 but the funniest thing is is there's actually a line in the movie where they're like, is it Dead Man or Dead Man? What is it? Is it Dead? He's like, it's Dead Man. <laughs> <laughs> Got to put it
0: in there. So thank you again, Andrew Hunt. Um, go out and see Infernal Machine. And um, as Andrew knows, it's not over till the guests say it's over. Yeah, it's over. (laughs)